Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mindfulness Monday, October 19th. You know, one of the things amongst many that has reared its head during this pandemic is that there has been a lot of um, polarization and that has resulted in a lot of conflict, okay? First, it was about how we felt about being in lockdown. Then it was over mandatory mask wearing. Then it was over the Black Lives Matter movement. And now it's about the election coming up. Never before in my lifetime have I seen so much dissent, conflict, opposition, and sheer chaos. So how do we deal with all of this at a time when emotions are already running so high and people feel so overwhelmed with fear and anxiety? Well, fear is actually one of the emotions that causes things like conflict. But what's really interesting about that, according to my special guest today, is that it's really our fear of conflict that plagues our personal, professional, and societal relationships. And that means fear of conflict itself. And, you know, fear of not being loved or seen the way we wanna be seen and fear that we are woefully unprepared and ill-equipped to handle the problems that beset us, which our guest writes in his book. That passage is from this very interesting and thought-provoking book called Dangerous Love, Transforming Fear and Conflict at Home, at Work, and in the World. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Chad Ford is a professor of inter intercultural peacebuilding and director of the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He serves on the executive board of the nonprofit Peace Players and currently works with the Arbinger Institute as a consultant on global conflict resolution initiatives. He has worked as conflict mediator, facilitator, and consultant for governments, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and corporations around the world. He previously was a senior editor writer at ESPN and is the author, as I said, of his new book, Dangerous Love. Welcome to Mindfulness Monday, Chad. It's so great to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I want to begin by saying that I love nothing more than to have your book, Dangerous Love, be the antidote, if you will, for helping us navigate what seems to be insurmountable conflicts we are facing today. And perhaps if more people read your book, which I'm hoping they will after this interview, maybe it can be the very thing we need right now. Why don't we start with you explaining to our listeners what exactly is dangerous love and why you feel it can transform fear and conflict? Well, I've been working as a conflict mediator really for the past 20 years. And, you know, in all of my time working on that, I'm always trying to figure out what is it that actually transforms conflict, right? So you want to get to the point, not where you can just tolerate someone or you can kind of suck it up and be in a relationship with, uh, with them, but you can actually really figure out how to do something that I think is really critical in any healthy relationship, which is collaboratively problem solve, right? In fact, in the book, I, I, I say that one definition of conflict, there's many, is that it's our inability to collaboratively problem solve, right? So if you think about just in your day-to-day -day life, uh, in any relationship, you are sm solving small, small problems together all the time. If you're married with your partner constantly, you're doing small little problem solving exercises all day. And most of them are happening in the background. You don't even know what's going on. If you have children, it's constantly Get it? Who's getting who to school? Who's making lunch? Who's picking up? Who's taking to the doctors? You know, all of these different things. And it's going really well. Same thing at work. It's happening all the time. And in our community, just day-to-day -day life, again, lots of just really small little conflict uh, uh, collaboration patterns that are happening. But when we find something that we can't solve together easily, that's when there's real problems, right? 
And it is especially a problem in relationship because one of the things that we function on so often in relationship is I really like this person. I'm really, either I'm attracted to this person, uh, if it's my partner, or I just actually really like this person. I love being around them. Things are easy for me when I'm, ar when I'm around them. And when conflict rears its head, that sort of easy love goes away. And so the problem is, how do I continue to show love towards people that I deeply disagree with, that are doing things that are annoying me or bothering me or frankly, just offending me? And when I say love, I'm no longer talking about how do I like them in that moment or how do I feel attracted to them? Because I might not like them very much um, in that moment, but how do I care enough about their needs, wants and desires that they matter as much to me as my, my own matter to me. And so I'm committed to rolling up my sleeves and trying to find a solution that works for both of us. And that's what I mean by dangerous love is that I'm going to engage in problem solving with someone who I'm not feeling that easy love towards. And so it feels dangerous, it feels scary. It feels mm -hmm. like there's a lot of vulnerability on the line. And certainly because a lot of us grow up with an intrinsic fear of conflict in the first place, there's this fear that something bad might happen to me or our relationship if I actually really engage this and take this head on. So instead I avoid conflict or I just roll over and give in um, or I get really competitive in the moment and just try to win the conflict and convince the other person that I'm right. And if you were talking about polarization to start off, if you look at any of those techniques, none of them help solve the polarization epidemic that's happening right now. In fact, many of them actually make it make it worse, which is what's so frustrating. Absolutely. It's it seems like it's only becoming more exacerbated rather than, you know, not having these tools, these skill sets, as you write so well in your book that we can utilize so that we can ameliorate or or be productive in our problem solving skills. You know, you ask in your book, Chad, what if we could transform our fear of conflict by learning how to love the people we are in conflict with through the conflict? I know you specifically talk about this love being called dangerous love. I have said before that one of the greatest meditations or acts of transformation is to be able to sit with your enemy and discuss your differences without hating them but to love them, that takes tremendous consciousness or transcendence to do. How do you teach people to do that? Well, I think it, I think it starts with a couple of things. One is that it starts with letting go of a fear of conflict in general, right? A lot of times our fear is coming from something from the past. It might not even be connected to the person that we're in conflict with at the moment, right? But we've had bad experiences with conflict. And frankly, for some of us, it starts very young when we watch our parents uh, engage in conflict. And if they did it in a destructive way, in a non-collaborative way, we took certain things from that, that conflict is scary, that conflict hurts people's feelings. Uh, maybe your parents only argued behind closed doors. So conflict is something secret or something that I'm not supposed to be uh, alive to. And we take all of that and we bring them to our relationships, right? And so the first time that there's a disagreement or something rears its head, I think to myself, oh no, this is scary. This is dangerous. Something's wrong here. Something's broken. Instead of seeing conflict as something natural that happens with any sort of committed relationship, we're not always going to agree. We're not always going to see things the same way. But a lot of times we just lack the tools really to know what to do when that happens. And so that's another reason for the fear. I'm not sure what to do here, right? They want this. I want this. It, that seems really scary and I don't know what to do next, except maybe what mom or dad did or what I've seen on television. And, and a lot of times those are just really poor examples. So the first thing is trying to help people see that conflict can be constructive, not destructive. That it's a natural part of a relationship, doesn't mean anything's wrong or broken um, in your relationship. And that when we go through conflict the right way, it can actually um, strengthen our relationship because it can help things go right. It can help us get our needs met as well as our partners or whoever else we're talking about get their needs met. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing to have, have happen. And so that's, that's one. And by the way, uh, my, my, um, my wife is a mindfulness instructor and a yoga instructor, and, and she works with me a lot. And a lot of it's deep breathing. A lot of it's just getting focused. We do couples yoga sometimes together. Oh, that's great. All, all of this stuff to get people in a headspace or in a mindset 
that is is letting go of some of those uh, some of those fears and, and have a lot of different exercises that we do with that. Right. And I, and I would say to that as a mindfulness practitioner and author myself is having the awareness of the discomfort that when you're facing conflict to have the awareness for the variety of reasons that each of us bring to that you know, facing our conflict with another could be, you know, what happened in childhood. I think having the awareness like, oh, okay, I'm about to get into a fight or I'm gonna get into a confrontation and I don't like this, this makes me uncomfortable. I wanna hide, I wanna run away, I wanna attack. I think where mindfulness is really key and I'm so happy to hear that your wife is a mindfulness practitioner as well, that you have the awareness of the discomfort and still wanna work through it in spite of it. Do you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, part of it is one of the things that I show people is um, a, a, this digitized brain scan. And I show them one brain and it and it's a computer rendition of a brain scan. And you're seeing the neural pathways, right, that that are delivering our messages back and forth across our brain. And I showed them this one and I just asked them what they noticed. And I said, OK, there's several thick lines here. They're different colors. I see a, a, occasionally they're crossing the brain, but a lot of the lines seem to be just in one sort of area. And I say, okay, great. Now let's look at this other one. And this other one, the second brain is someone who's practicing mindfulness. Um, someone who in the moment is feeling a deep sense of, of, of peace and the brain lights up. There are, there's 10 times as many neural pathways. They're now crossing the brain in all sorts of different ways. And I show them to these two brains. One is on fear and one brain is in this sort of moment of peace. And I say, no wonder we can't collaboratively problem solve when we're feeling fear, right? Our brain gets in these ruts and it's like we have blinders on and we revert back to some very, some very basic human fight or flight types of responses to things um, that sometimes are deeply just ingrained in our biology, right? And so I'm going to run if I can run or I'm going to fight if I can't run. And how do I become aware of that? How do I become aware of the feelings, the emotions, the, the literal body sensations that I have as adrenaline starts getting pumped um, through my brain? And how do I stop? Notice that. Notice, okay, that I'm feeling fear here, um, but now I'm gonna sit with that fear and I'm gonna try to open up my brain. I'm gonna open myself up. And, and really where we need to open ourselves up to is the humanity of the person I'm in conflict with right now. Right. That's yeah. the second step is letting go of my fear of conflict of this person. And so this person that I'm in conflict with, should I be afraid of them right now? Are they trying to harm me? Are they trying to, to provoke this, this fear within me? And if they're not, because look, sometimes people can be violent towards us. Sometimes people are intentionally trying to cause us harm. But I find that most of the time, uh, at least with the clients that I'm working with in conflict, they may feel like the person's trying to intentionally cause harm, but they're not, um, right? right? Uh, they're, they're not at all. They're, they're trying to get their needs met the same way that I'm trying to get my needs met, but that that is that feels dangerous to us, right? right. Yeah, and it may be hostile and it may be aggressive. And I think when we're when we're you know dealing with someone who's coming off aggressive, we can you know heighten that fight or flight feeling. And also to circle back to mindfulness, it's really being aware of our reactivity, especially when we're in the throes of uh, conflict. It's very easy to immediately react to that person. So you you understand that you know the the sense of like I don't need to just let this you know leave my lips right now, which is a reactive response to this person, which just fuels the conflict. Yeah, it, and you're you're so right, and it's amazing how quickly it happens. And and by the way, I I really try to practice mindfulness, and I really try to practice dangerous love, and it happens to me. I'll notice Help us constantly. No, even if we're even if we're the authors of these books, we're, yeah. it's a constant practice, isn't it, Chad? Yeah, my, my teenager will roll her eyes at me, and there'll be this immediate sort of reaction, like, "What did you just do?" Like, I I want to react in a, I, a way that's actually going to be really unproductive, and and because I feel threatened in some way, I feel like she doesn't respect me, or I feel like she's not taking what I'm saying seriously. Uh, and those moments, those will be triggers for those sort of emotions to come up. But what I do next with those emotions, and by, and by the way, I tell people, it's not bad that you feel those emotions. The, the, there's nothing necessarily wrong about feeling those emotions. It's how we process them 
and what we do with those emotions that matter, not about feeling badly that I, in a moment I feel angry or I feel disgusted or whatever those sort of emotions are. Yeah, and you know, we're human and we're gonna react and we're gonna be triggered. Look, never in our lifetime have we watched a presidential debate and I don't wanna get into politics at all in our time together, but that, you know, to watch that debate and, and to, we all, for those of us that watch it, we saw what took place. There were a lot of <laughs> agitators and triggers going on on that stage. To hear, you know, um, you know, Vice President Joe Biden say, shut up, man. Do you know, it was, you know, and, and not to put him on the hot seat, because I think he was trying his best to maintain equanimity. And that's to me a really good thing to study about you push somebody, you push somebody, you push somebody, and then how far can they go before they respond? And, you know, to me, again, this is all one big, great meditation for us to learn from, do you know, with, with how we act and with what we're seeing all around us. What's so fascinating about this and our perceptions in conflict, when we get deep into conflict, is you know, you, you mentioned the, in the, uh, the first presidential debate. Uh, if you followed it on Facebook, if you were a Joe Biden supporter, you saw this very aggressive man constantly interrupting, constant being, constantly being rude, um, constantly interfering. If you're a President Trump supporter, you saw a moderator that was constantly being disrespectful to the president, constantly interrupting the president, constantly not letting the president, because that's his personality. And that's what we like about him, some people would say, trying to take him off his game and seeing it as unfair. And so one of the things that happens in conflict too, is we, we only see one side of the conflict, right? Um, for, the, for the people who supported President Trump, they couldn't see the interrupting part. They couldn't see the disrespect towards Joe Biden, uh, but they definitely heard the shut up man um, thing. And they saw that as deeply disrespectful. For people who supported Joe Biden, they saw a, a president constantly interrupting and, and Joe Biden being cool and collected and, and only saying what he said when he was pushed you know, past the point, uh, the breaking point. And, you know, I see that as a mediator. And, uh, and, and, I, and I look at that and I say, isn't that interesting, right? Um, both people are seeing the same event happening, but they see it very, very differently. Right. I mean, it triggers them in very different ways, right? And both sides are convinced that the way they saw it is the truth. It is the truth with a capital T. It is the way that it happened. And if you saw it differently, you're partisan, you're brainwashed, you don't know what you're talking about. And, and you know, that's where the starts of our polarization has. We're literally experiencing similar events and we're experiencing them very differently. And we're experiencing them in a way, and I write about this in my book, in a way that gives us justification. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, we look at events and we look for the things and events that help us confirm what we already believe or what we already think we know to be true. And we have like little radars that are out looking for those things. And when we find them, we see them, we take them as evidence that what we're thinking and feeling is correct. And what the other person that we're in conflict with is thinking and feeling um, is wrong. And we cut out, our brains are amazing, by the way, we literally won't hear or see evidence that's contrary to what we think or believe. We just, we just miss it um, completely. And, uh, and our brains are actually really good at that in conflict. And so you get back to mindfulness again, or you get back up for opening our ability to see and to breathe. Um, right when we're in conflict, our brains are shut down. They have these blinders on and they're right. only gonna see what it wants to see. And it's gonna ignore anything that, that we can't see. And so you wonder all the time, why does my parents or my child or you know, this person out there, my friend on Facebook, how in the world could they vote for this person? Or how in the world could they support it? And the answer is a long, long pattern of cognitive dissonance right. that has blinded them to certain things um, and, and made them alive to other things. And so getting to conflict transformation requires us to let go of some of that. And it's just, frankly, it's really, really challenging um, to do. And the, the thing that I would say is most important is you can't make someone else do it. You can't shame them into doing it. You can't force them into doing it. 
And I, you know, I see a lot of strategies on Facebook around this. Like, I'm going to shame you. I'm going to marshal a lot of evidence. I'm going to post you all of these links and facts. And then people just reject it and say fake news or, um, you know, what have you. And, and so um, cognitively debating, trying to manipulate, trying to force, trying to shame. Brene Brown's work on shaming, by the way, I, I wish everyone would read it. It's, it's so fascinating in, in the, the uh, backlash that shaming actually uh, gives right to people. But loving people through it has a wholly different effect on people. Mm -hmm. um, and loving doesn't mean, and I think this is a really important point, doesn't mean that I agree with you. Doesn't mean that I'm trying to validate your points um, or that I support your positions, but I'm seeing the human being in this situation and I'm trying to understand why you would think or feel that way and trying to show love or care for you despite the fact, <laughs> right, that you may hold a belief or a value that's really different than my own. Look, we, yes, we have come so, we have moved so far away even from respectfully disagreeing. I mean, yeah. let's just take that at a time where we could say, well, we could have these debates and we could differ in our opinions and, you know, we could respectfully disagree. We have moved so far backwards in the way in which, I mean, I say, where is civil discourse? It is completely disappeared. I want to, I want to, you know, stay on just so that our listeners can get more familiar with really what dangerous love looks like to practice. You say that nothing is safe in dangerous love and that dangerous love requires more than courage. It demands fearlessness. Talk to us more about that. Let's, let's get our listeners more familiar with what this concept is about. So if I'm afraid of conflict or I'm afraid of the person that I'm in conflict with, um, I typically will choose avoiding as a way to get out of the conflict. If I can, it's the number one conflict style that people um, choose when they're in conflict, right? Which, which makes sense. If I'm afraid of something, what am I gonna do? I'm trying to get away from it as fast as I can, right? And avoid it. Or I'm gonna choose accommodating. I'm just gonna give in because maybe if I give in, the conflict will go away and that side will be happy. And maybe they'll see that I gave in. And so therefore, you know, maybe they'll be nice to me down the road and they'll give me something back. Or I attack right? I'm, I'm, I feel so threatened that I, I just attack back. And that's a way of beating, again, the conflict back and kind of sort of beating it into submission. Dangerous love, though, actually asks us not to do any of those things, right? Not to run, not to just lay down and give in, nor to attack the other person, but to turn and try to see their humanity and engage with them in collaborative problem solving. And the problem with that, what reason it's dangerous, the reason it requires fearlessness is that requires something of me that the other types of conflict styles don't. And that's vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I have to open myself up to that person and, and let them see my humanity and the things that I need. And I have to open myself up to them even when they're sane or doing things that could be triggering for me or, or very uh, challenging for me to swallow. And I have to sit with that. Um, and sometimes I have to sit with that for days or weeks or months. And we call this in the book, turning first. And, and the reason we ca call it turning first is that one of the things that I hear all the time in, in conflict mediations is, well, I'll do it when they do it. The minute that they show me respect, then I'll show respect. Or the minute that they show me that they're willing to give up something that they want is the minute I will show them. But they have to go first, right? And of course, when I'm working with the other side, they say the exact same thing, right? And so turning first is who's going to have the courage to be the first person to turn towards the other person and offer something or to create space right, that starts to de-escalate the conflict instead of escalate the conflict. And that's a scary thing because I've been taught my whole life, if I do that, they'll take advantage of me, um, right, in the moment. They may reject me in the moment. I'm going to offer a sincere apology here, but they may reject my apology, and then I'm going to feel really stupid inside. I'm going to tell someone how I feel about them in a positive way, but they may not reciprocate that feeling back. They may come back and tell me how they feel about me and it could be very negative um, in return. And that, that's all scary. That all hurts, right? And so do I have the courage? And we call this self-preservation versus us preservation in the book, right? And, and in those moments of fear and conflict, I engage in self-preservation. I'm trying to protect me. 
And instead, I'm going to give that up. And instead of trying to protect them, that's them preservation. And, and that's okay, but not to the extent that we hurt ourselves. Us preservation is what are the things that I need to do to preserve us? And I'm going to put the relationship at the top. And, you know, I tell the story in the book, and I, I think it's, it's, it's such a simple story, but it's so fascinating. When I was in grad school studying conflict resolution, I'm studying all of this. And I'm starting to think about my own conflicts in my own life, right? It's, it's, it's impossible. One of the great reasons to study it academically, I love teaching it, is you're both learning academically, but it puts a giant magnifying glass on your own. We, we are our best guinea pigs, actually. On your own life. And, you know, I have so many students that come to me and they're like, I had no idea when I was taking take your class, like what was going to happen, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I did. Um, and, you know, so I'm one of those grad students. And so I knock on my professor's door one day and I want to ask him about a conflict in my life, but I also want to look good and I don't want to look ridiculous and I want to look like I'm someone who should be in a conflict resolution program. And so I thought carefully through what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it right so I look pretty good. Um, and I make sure the conflict doesn't look like it's my fault, but I want some advice on what I should do next. And so I end up telling him this whole story. And I remember he just pauses and is just looking at me for a while and I'm getting a little uncomfortable and so I'm like so you know what do you think and he's like, you know well I found that the theory of the conflict will often lead to its resolution. So once I understand what's causing it, it will help illuminate um, where we're gonna go. And I said, okay, that's really great. And I pause again, he doesn't say anything. And I said, well, well so what's your theory of the conflict? <laughs> and he looks at me and he says something that's really stuck with me through the rest of my life. He's like, look, I found a conflict. You can either be right or you can have peace but you can rarely have both. So my question to you is, are you more interested in being right or are you more interested in having peace? Mm -hmm. um, you tell me. And it, it was like a dagger went into my heart because I knew immediately the answer was, I'm interested in being right. I had crafted this entire story to him to show him that I was right. And now what I was really looking for was how do I convince that other person that I'm right? Right, because once they understand that I'm right, the conflict goes away because we both can agree on the same set of facts right. now. Right. And, and it never occurred to me that I would have to give that up um, to, uh, and, and, and when I say give that up, I don't want you to say that, that somehow I believe that I'm wrong anymore, but I can be right, but be deeply wrong in a relationship, right? In other words, I can, I can be right on the facts, Mm -hmm. but deeply wrong in how I treat someone um, because of those facts, right? I can rub it in, uh, you know, I can rub it in, I can belittle, I can be demeaning, I can be condescending, I can put the rightness of that fact above the rightness of how I treat another person or how I see another person in a relationship. And when I do that, I come away with a certain justification, I'm right but I'm being wrong towards a person, right. uh, towards another human being. Right. And, and, and giving up being right, I found is one of the scariest things that I've ever had to do. When we talk about it's dangerous to just give up for a minute that need, that, that overwhelming need to be right for a minute and just sit and be right with the person right. that I'm in conflict with, that's scary. Well. Absolutely, because really what comes to mind really is the struggle with the ego. Do you know, and that's something that we all have to really, you know, really own about ourselves that, you know, deep within sometimes these dynamics that we have with one another and the, the need to be right, if you will. You know, I, I don't wanna make light of the fact that sometimes you can have two people that are really embroiled or enmeshed in this conflict and it's basically two egos going at it you know, and it's supported by the ego and it's, and it can lead us really, you know, down a pretty ugly path with another human being. You talk a lot about humanity and the compassion. I do say in your book, really a, a lot through the book, the whole concept of we, I always say we're much more powerful as a we than a me. And that the level of me centricity Again, the egoic need to be right, do you know? And also earlier, Chad, when you were talking, I, you know, it, it harkens back to, you know, something that we would teach our children, try and be the bigger person, 
do you know, what is the role of the bigger person? What does that, what does that really require of us that we have to relinquish the, the, the need to be right all the time? Do you know, this is, this can be very delicate sometimes. It is because usually when I tell that story to someone in conflict, their, their reaction back is, but what if I am right? Well, I know that I'm right. And I'm like, okay, okay, fair enough, right? Yes, I believe that my parents are, are posting fake news on their Facebook page right now. And I, and I know that the conspiracy theory that they uh, have embroiled themselves in is misinformation. It's not true. Okay, fair enough. You, you probably are right, right? Yeah. But how, yeah. how I'm being with that person. And so I don't even like to use the word bigger person because that still elevates me above another human. That's, a, that's another way that I can almost look at someone condescendingly and say, oh, I'm being bigger than you now, or I'm being better than you. What I, what I say to someone is, have you ever felt um, right before and someone else has been convinced that you're not? Yes, we've all been there, right? And when they belittle you with facts and links and everything else back, does it really change your opinion? Well, no, I, I, I go back and I find other stuff. And do you ever wonder why they're posting that in the first place? Why would they believe in a conspiracy theory or you know, something? So what, what is it that's motivating that, right? Have you ever taken the time to get deeper behind what's going, going on there and ask those questions? And, and to me, the magic question, when we're really, if you wanna talk about being, uh, being right with another person, it's asking why questions. It's being curious with people. And, and, and instead of just assuming when someone says or does something, I want to understand why, what motive, what's motivating you, what's going on in your life today, or what's going on in, in the past with you that's led you to this point that you think and feel that way. And, and by the way, the, one of the greatest relationship building exercises we can ever do with another person it's just to ask them why. People like talking about themselves. People like digging deeper and they'll find you quite fascinating and quite empathetic when you're just asking um, why questions and they're not that hard to ask. And why can't we know what our difference is about and sit with each other? You know, I remember when, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when Trump first came into office and I was in another country, I don't wanna go into all the particulars of this story, but just really what I got out of it was that um, he became the president and that I was you know, traveling. I happened to be in Israel at the time. And I know you're very familiar with the whole is Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but, but we'll save that for later. Okay. Um, anyway, somebody that was on the trip with me at the time recognized that there was a couple there and the husband was a Republican and the wife was a Democrat. And I was standing over the side. And when I heard this person say, oh, I'm not going anywhere near him during this trip mm. with such disdain and such disgust. And so fast forward that the morning after I happened to be in the, um, the dining area with the buffet, my husband was uh, up in, in our room and his wife was in their room. And so he and I were together and we decided to sit together and have breakfast together. And my intention, I can speak for myself, not for him, but I think we shared this and we had this in common, was that we wanted to have a conversation as to why he made the choice he did and why did I make the choice that I did. And that was very appealing to me, you know, especially on the heels of hearing someone say, I am dismissing this human being because they voted for this person and they disgust me. And I'm sorry, this is too close to home. This isn't like strangers. This isn't behavior that we're seeing out in the world. This is behavior that we're doing to one another. This is behavior that's happening with family members, with friends, with communities. Well, we are just writing each other off because we, we're voting differently. And, you know, Houston, we have a problem. I'm sorry. Well, of course we do. And, and it's what's so fascinating is that when people, almost everybody agrees that polarization is a problem. There's very few people in the United States right now that wouldn't rank it as one of the biggest problems. But then the solution to the problem, they often say, is it's the other side causing polarization, right? And so I'm not causing it. I'm a, I'm a victim of it. And the other person is, is causing it. And, and you know, part of that, that's partly true. 
right? Because we're in conflict, we're engaged in this sort of dynamic thing. We talk about this in the book called collusion, um, right? Uh, which is two people that are not seeing each other's humanity anymore that are actually kind of provoking each other each way. And so they're half of that equation for sure. On top of that, there are structural forces. There's misinformation that's happening online. There are foreign actors involved. There are people that are literally out there and spending their time. And if you've seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, I think it's 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 yes. a must watch. Definitely. Understanding conflict, that there are people that are very sophisticated that understand how human beings think and act in conflict that are intentionally trying to trigger through bots, through uh, the use of social media, this sort of reaction in people. And, and so we're, we also are all victims in some ways of people trying to manipulate a, a system that, that we are engaged in that's happening at a very structural level. Right. And, and so we have to sort of understand that when I'm feeling that, it's not enough to just say, and this will end when the other side ends. This will end when President Trump loses the election, or this will end when President Trump wins the election and proves to people that this is you know, validating that the majority of Americans um, feel this way. It, it's, it's, it can't be about the majority of the Americans. It, it has to be, we have to start thinking about ourselves as a country again. Right. or as a family again, or as a community um, again. And that means that in those structures, there are going to be differences of opinion. There are going to be different priorities that people have. And great collaborative problem solving tries to find ways to meet the needs of everybody um, in the room in a way that works for everybody. And this is not impossible in yeah. families. This yeah. is not impossible in marriages. This is not impossible in parenting. It's not impossible in our communities. And it's not impossible in politics either. Right. Uh, but to do so, I, have, I, I can't dismiss the humanity of the people who, who I disagree with. Absolutely. In the moment. Yes. And, and, and I believe that's something, and I know people don't, don't like this, well, both sides, you, you shouldn't both sides things. Some people are doing it worse than others. But you know, people who say that have not been mediators. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I really say that because I've, I've spent literally in, in thousands of conflicts. Right. And yes, I could as a judge sit on the side and say, well, what you did was worse than what you did. But what happens in the conflict dynamic is that the people that are living in the conflict don't see it that way. They don't perceive it that way. And our perception, um, as you know, from mindfulness is our reality uh, at times, right? Our perceptions are reality. So telling someone, well, what you did was 10 times worse than them. And so you, the, the weight is on your shoulders um, to change is not an effective tool to actually invite someone to change. Right. And, and so it gets back to this thing again about being right or having peace. Do I want real change to happen in my family or my community um, or the world? Or do I just wanna be right? Do I wanna signal to the world that I stand on the right side of history or the right side of this? Or do I really want to see something change? Right. And, and that is a very different reaction. And dangerous love is the sort of one, sort of love that says, I could go out there now and bash this person. I could go out there and take a stand. I could go out there and show how much better I am than this person because I, I stand on the right side. Or I could roll up my sleeves and try to say, I really want this to change. And so, you know, a lot of my work over the last little bit has been um, with Black Lives Matter and working with police officers. It's so and important. Chad, your, your book is really timely. I have to say that. It couldn't be more well-timed than it is right now. I want to go a little bit deeper again into the whole sort of machinations of practicing dangerous love. How do you propose that we see, see the people we are struggling with? You say in your book, people can feel each other, but they can't see each other. And when we get stuck in conflict, we have a hard time seeing other people as people going back to the word humanity. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, yeah, you can imagine two people standing back to back with each other and they're elbowing each other, but they can't see each other, right? And so I could feel each other, but I don't see each other. And I'll, I'll literally take this visual image sometimes. I'll literally sometimes have people stand up in the room and do this. They'll stand back to back and they'll elbow each other. 
And, and then I'll ask people, okay, let's assume that this is a metaphor for conflict, right? We feel each other, but we can't see each other. And let's just assume for a minute that seeing is, is one of the ways, is one of the steps. I've seen the humanity of the person would improve my ability to be able to collaboratively problem solve. I'll ask one person, where would you move, right? I just want you to move in the room, wherever you would go, wherever you think would be right. And, and, and almost every time they'll do the same thing, they will, they will move and try to get in front of the other person now. So they'll walk around and try to get face to face with the person. And then I tell the other person, okay, you're still in conflict with this other person. You haven't decided to move. What are you going to do? And they just turn around. And then the per they'll start chasing each other in a circle. And sometimes people get so frustrated, they'll grab the person and try to stare them in the eyes and the person will just close their eyes. And then they'll throw their hands up and look at me and see, see it's impossible. And, and I say, you know, look, it's not impossible, but look what you did there. You moved and tried to get in front of the other person. And what I think our strategy, a lot of times when we talk about seeing people as people is, what I really think you mean, Chad, is help them see me as a person. And so what I'm gonna to try to do is get in front of them so that they can see me because once they see me as a person, they'll stop doing whatever it is that's annoying or frustrating. They'll start to understand where I come from and why I believe the things that they do and, and the conflict will change. And while on the, on the surface, that theory seems like it's great and correct, um, it's not actually what I'm talking about in dangerous love. And so I say, look at the, the problem. I can't force another person to see me. No matter how much I try to move in front of them or, or grab them or whatever, I can't force them to do it. And in fact, sometimes the more I try to force them to do it, the more resistant they actually become. And so I tell them, get back to back and try it again. So that's not the move. And let's try it again. And, and most people get it on the second time. And what they do is they just turn around and now they're facing, they're staring at their back. They've moved away from them. They, they can't help, the other person can't elbow anymore and they're just staring at their back. And then this really cool thing happens. The person who hasn't moved notices that the person isn't there anymore. They can't elbow them anymore, but they can't see them either. And the head will start to turn. They'll, their whole bodies will start to turn. They're just trying to find out where you are in the room. And, and I say, okay, look what you did there. You, in, instead of trying to force them to see your humanity, you tried to see theirs. And you just sat with it. You didn't try to force anything from them. You didn't try to move them. You didn't try to get them to change. You just sat there. And that is a powerful invitation to the other person to turn. More than you turning and trying to get in front of them or grabbing them or forcing them to see you. When you see another person's humanity, it becomes a powerful invitation for the other person uh, to turn. And, and this is counterintuitive often to how we've gone about conflict our whole life. And I just go back to social media again, what's happening? I'm on social media and I'm trying to get you to see my point of view, trying to get you to see my perspective, trying to get you to see how you are wrong and how I am right, right? I'm, I'm literally taking that move of trying to get in front of you and getting you to force to see me. And then I'm so dismayed that those conversations end with, people resisting me, people uh, uh, disagreeing with me, people marshalling their own facts back or blocking me uh, sometimes on social media. And I throw my- going on right now, a lot of that, yeah. And so how do I see that person that I disagree with? And just, and we talk about this a lot in mindfulness and then sit with it. I'm not trying to do anything with it. I'm not trying to crush it. I'm not trying to um, grip it. I'm not trying to throw it away. I'm just sitting and being with it um, for a bit. Sometimes doing nothing is powerful. And I yeah. say not nothing, you know, I'm not connoting passivity. I'm just saying, again, just to be able to be with that. And what you keep sort of inviting the reader and the listener to do is to really connect to our own, uh, respect for humanity, especially in another, you know, these are, these are more, you know, I think um, the, the ways in which it always makes me think of Gandhi's quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. Well, how are we going to see those changes unless we become the very people that we want to see the world changed by, you know, again, not waiting for the other person to do it. Um, you know, I could see the time flying by quickly. Talk to us about seeing conflict as something called smog, 
which is one of your chapters and how one of your students described conflict as smog and conflict also being like a cocoon. Explain to our readers what that means and the difference between how a smog thinker transforms con conflict versus a cocoon thinker. So I want to get into some of the really juicy parts of the book, you know? So we talk about this metaphor in the book uh, and metaphors for conflict and lots of different ones that people can pick. But people generally, if I ask them to choose a metaphor around a conflict, choose something negative. They choose a volcano, they choose a tornado, they, you know, they choose something. And one that I really like that I've had several people use is smog. Because if you think about smog, we all know it's bad for us. We all know that breathing it in isn't healthy for our lungs. Uh, but we also feel a little bit uh, unable to do much about it, right? I can buy a Prius. I can walk to work. I, you know, I, I, I can do certain things to reduce emissions or whatever. But given that there's so many other cars out there on the road and there's so much else happening, what can I do as an individual to really sort of change this? And this becomes a metaphor for conflict. Conflict lies externally to me. It's happening to me. Um, I know it's not good for me, but there's very little that I can do um, about it to really make a difference. And so I feel consumed by it. I feel constantly under siege by it. And then I react in those very predictable fight or flight ways. And so I call that a, a smog view of conflict. And you can understand why you would react that way. A cocoon was actually, that metaphor was given to me by someone who came from the island of Truck uh, out in the Pacific. And this, this, this young lady one time, she blew away our whole class when she said, it's like a cocoon. And everybody said, well, that's very different than a volcano or whatever. And she's like, well, think about it for a minute. I'm a, I'm a caterpillar and I'm out and I'm eating leaves and I'm doing my thing. And then it's time for me to become a butterfly. And I go into this cocoon and it's actually very tight and it's dark and it's confining. And if you know anything about caterpillars in a cocoon, they, their bodies literally liquefy. I mean, if you look at a butterfly, it's not a caterpillar with wings. It's like a different creature, right? It turns into something else. But when it was released from the cocoon, it can fly. Mm -hmm. And it's this beautiful thing, right? And so I think a conflict a little bit like that, it can be dark, it can be scary, it can feel confining. There's things inside of me that have to change as part of it, but I come out the other end with wings. And, 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 and so how we view that conflict can tell us everything about what the, the styles that I'm gonna approach it. If I have a cocoon view, I'm gonna try to approach it from a space of collaboration. This is gonna be hard, it's gonna be scary, but I know as we work together on this, and I know as, as long as I'm seeing your humanity, while still holding true to the things that are important to me, um, we're going to find something that's going to work better for both of us than the current status quo. But if I have a smog view, I am going to be running or fighting or just giving in. I'm going to be doing all of these strategies that aren't actually going to make it better and are actually going to reinforce the yeah. feeling that conflict is un unsolvable with people. Right. And, and so owning that cocoon view and learning the tools that allow us to collaboratively problem solve, suddenly make conflict not such a scary thing anymore. In right. fact, it, it, we see it as an opportunity to make a difference in this world. And I see all this polarization because I try to be a cocoon thinker and I see it as an opportunity. I see it as an opportunity for us to come together and start thinking about ourselves as a country, as our family in a more holistic way as not us versus them, but as just us. And I think that's such a really important point. I do, and I really love the cocoon metaphor because I think what comes to mind for me is the possibility of something positive emerging, do you know, and, and what the butterfly represents, even though, you know, to me, it's also like the lotus flower emerges from muddy water. You know, what you emerge from or out of can be arduous and difficult and dark, but what comes of it can be very transcendent, do you know? And I think that that's something that we have to keep in mind that to stay stuck in the smog concept, what do we gain from being stuck in something that we feel is futile and there's no resolution? But I, I think the cocoon metaphor actually is, is really brings to mind hopefulness and I'm a perennial optimist that way. So. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about your chapter, The Chasm of Separation and Self-Deception. At this point, you've just, just you know, explained the difference between the smog 
thinker versus the cocoon thinker view of conflict, but they might need more about what to do as far as being the actual turner that you speak about. How can you assuage our listeners of maybe perhaps their uncertainty or ambivalence about, you know, well, how, how can I actually be the turner? You know, I want people to get that concept before this interview is over. Yeah. That you can become a successful turner. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so interesting. When I talk about this, we're at a place uh, where so many people come to me and say, that's just not going to work. I don't know what you're talking about. That love's not going to solve anything um, anymore. And, you know, turning first, it's not going to work. And I really think there's sort of three misconceptions that are really going on in what I'm talking about here. First is that when I'm saying, uh, turning first, uh, that that's something passive, that when we're talking about dangerous love, it's something passive. It's not, it's actually something very active. It's not not doing something. It's actually just doing it differently um, than I've done it in the past and learning that the things that I've tried in the past, avoidance, accommodation, competition, they're not working. And so the first thing I ask a lot of times people that are working for is the stuff that you're doing right now working right? And the answer I always know is no, because they wouldn't be in my office or I, they wouldn't have hired me if the answer was yes, right? Like no one hires a mediator when things are working well. They only hire them when they're not. And so I, let's just stop and pause with just that thing for a minute, because I think that's the first realization. If things are bad right now and you agree that they're bad, then you can also agree that the things that I've been trying to do to make it not bad aren't working. And so therefore, it's insanity to keep trying and doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on those things um, as a solution to the problem. And so the first thing I have to do, if I just from a very practical standpoint, if I'm going to turn first is quit doing stuff that has been causing the conflict in the first place, right? Um, Quit avoiding, quit uh, accommodating, quit competing. We have to stop doing that. We have to let go of that for a minute and quit convincing ourselves. If I just try it one more time, or if I just do one more Facebook post, or if I just shame them just a little bit more, they're going to break. And this whole conflict is going, going well, to that's end. That's like the Einstein quote, isn't it? You know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again in the same way and expecting different results. Right. And, and so I just have to let go of that. And then the second thing I have to do is say that collaborative problem solving isn't weakness right? Because it's about us preservation, which means that I am bringing my needs and wants to the table. What I'm not asking in dangerous love is that I roll over and play dead because a lot of times people think love and they hear uh, where they, they think soft, right? Okay. So I will just love them and I'll just be nice to them and kind to them. Just let them do whatever I want. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about engaging in something that's actually really hard work. Um, and that is that I am going to try to both see your needs and I'm going to hold on to my own and we're going to keep working and working at this until I can walk away from this and and say your needs are met and you feel that they are and my needs are met and I feel that they are and so this isn't hey just roll over and play dead and just give in that's not what I'm talking about here but a lot of people hear that and that's what they see and then the third thing I have to, to say is that it requires intentionality, that a lot of times we think that our relationships should just come naturally, that it should just be easy for us, that, right, that I should just like you and it should just always come naturally. And if it isn't coming naturally, the, the solution is to cut that relationship off. That relationship is now toxic. I cut it off. I'm done with it, what have you. And now look, there are abusive relationships and there are relationships where you need to draw very strong boundaries and that can be toxic. But a lot of times the ones that we call toxic are toxic because of the way that we're engaging in the conflict, not because the person itself um, is, is toxic. And this requires intentionality. And so the next thing I say to be mindful about is how am I caring for this relationship right now mm-hmm. on an everyday basis? Do I wake up every day and think about what could I do constructively to signal to this person that I hear you, that I see you, that I'm committed to trying to help you walk through this life journey, uh, that I'm going to show you both in my words and my actions, that there's, there's things that I'm going to do to show you that, I, that I'm there for you. And when I do that, I create space. And in this space, I create space for, for other people to start to um, open up, to be vulnerable themselves, to turn um, back towards me. 
and that this is proven. I mean, it's scientifically proven um, to work. But so often in conflict, what we're doing is we're shutting down space. We're waiting for the other person um, to, to uh, act and to do this um, for me. And when they don't do it, we throw up our hands and say, um, it's impossible. And so I'm arguing for a very different way, but it's very active. Um, it's very um, challenging, but it can change the world. It can change the world of your relationship. It can change the worlds of your community. And there's been people, you, you've quoted uh, Gandhi, we've talked about Martin Luther King. There's, there's people out there that have chosen this path and have seen not just changes in relationships between individuals, but systemic changes okay. that have happened when I take this sort of approach. And I really think that that's, that's why I wrote this book is to give people hope um, yeah. that there is another way to do this. There is, and your book is really, you know, it's such a testament to if people are willing to apply these, these skills and this intelligence, if you will, that there's really ways in which we can work together and really connect to our humanity, which is much needed. We only have a couple minutes left. And, you know, to quote Gandhi, he said, um, again, uh, an eye for an eye will only make the whole world blind. And yet we see that retaliation, punishment, terrorism, and hate are still things we deal with in the world because of ongoing conflicts, and some of it till today seems so barbaric. Why do you feel, Chad, so strongly? I mean, I know you've told us a lot about why you wrote the book. The dangerous love is something each human being can learn to do, even in these types of places where living with conflict is commonplace and has been going on for hundreds of years. You propose that until we do practice dangerous love, we really won't be able to properly see one another with respect and overcome our conflict. So why don't you leave us with some words of wisdom, you know, about that so that we can really maybe really change it up in a way that um, is so needed right now. It's hard to believe in something that you can't see. And it's hard to have faith in people that you deeply disagree with. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is I've had the, the honor of sitting with thousands of people in conflict with each other, sometimes marriage conflict, sometimes parenting conflict, sometimes work, sometimes community. As you noted, I've worked in the Middle East a lot with Israelis and Palestinians, uh, with Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, um, with Blacks and whites in South Africa. And when I do, do so, most people from the outside look in and say, oh, that one's never going to solve. And so many people, when they come to me, they tell me, good luck, you don't know my husband, or you don't know my child, or you haven't dealt with the Palestinians before, or you haven't dealt with the Israelis. Yet I've seen them through dedication and time and patience practice dangerous love and dramatically transform the relationships that they've been in. And I've seen them come out of the other side happier, stronger, deeply committed. And when people see it, they're shocked, they're blown away. They're like, how in the world is this possible? And so whatever conflict you're in right now, my guess is it feels a little impossible right now. It feels a little bit like, yeah, I'm sure that works for other people, but that won't work here, or that won't work with this person, or that won't work with Republicans, or that won't work with Democrats, or what have you. And, and I'm here to tell you, yeah, yes, it will, but it will only work if I choose to do something. Um, right now about it. It won't work if I just wait and hope that, you know, uh, every Republican or every Democrat gets a, ch a, a copy of Dangerous Love and reads it and starts to turn first. It only works when I turn first. It only works when I practice that intentionality right now. And so as you look at the world and if you're dismayed by the world, if you're dismayed by the relationships in your family right now or your community or the world right now, my, my, my plea to you, and it's a plea, is that it's not too late, it's mm. not impossible, um, and it's by these small and simple things that great things come. Right. And that, that, but one person practicing intentionality and dangerous love in a family has a ripple effect that starts to build throughout that family. That one person practicing that towards their enemy in a community or in their nation has a ripple effect that starts to ripple through this. And if you want change, if that's your deepest desire is to see true change in a way that allows us to live and work together and be together in a better, more productive space, um, then don't just pray for it, 
Don't just hope for it. Um, don't just dream about other people doing it. Do something about it. And you will see that it might not overnight change the world, um, but it will change your world. And changing your world will, in my belief, start to change the world. Beautiful, beautiful. Chad, thank you so much for being um, a guest today and our listeners uh, enjoying your work. Again, friends, Dangerous Love, I highly recommend you go out and get a copy of Chad's book, Dangerous Love, Transforming Fear and Conflict at Home, at Work, and in the World. So I hope for my listeners with Chad and I today, you learned how practicing dangerous love can overcome conflict in practically any situation you find yourself in. And that by being someone who is willing to turn, as Chad talked to us about, to turn in the face of conflict, you are in fact choosing love over separation. And as Chad explained, this isn't, you know, soft love in the way maybe perhaps we think it is. This is dangerous love. And this is powerful love. This is effective love in which we can reach each other and move through the conflicts and transcend them in a way that really will, you know, embrace our humanity in ways in which we need to embrace it at this time. This is a time when we need to, to love more dangerously and transform our fear of conflict by having the courage, friends, to turn first. So until we meet again, from my heart to yours, stay safe, stay present, stay kind.